You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. I'm Amanda Matta. I have a degree in art history and a Pinterest board full of works of art that I would purchase if only I had um, the money. So uh, I have a podcast. We're we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, And if we collectively purchase these things together, pass them around Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants style, we are a little bit closer. Um, Today, we are here. We're gathered together for another Art Bite. These are the mini-sodes, which I script a little bit less. They're a little shorter, um, but not really because I tend to go on rants, just using the knowledge that I have in my brain. So buckle up. (laughs) If this is your first time tuning into the show, I will tell you the premise here. It is pretty simple. We take a look at works of art that can tell us a story about the past. And I do post supplemental images because, you know, this is an art history podcast. We're, we're talking about the visual medium in an audio format. Doesn't really compute all the way. Uh, I do post supplemental images over on the Instagram for the show, which is at Art of History Podcast. Very simple. So as you're listening, if you're in a place where it is safe to do so, I would recommend pulling that up. You can look at the images that we're chatting about, get them in your brain, um, or you can refer to them as we go along, make it a truly interactive experience. I don't know what you want to do with your time. Um, Before we dive into our subject matter today, which I think many of you are going to really enjoy, this is just your cursory reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, especially on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps get the show in front of new listeners, and that is only a net gain for all of us because it means I can devote more time and attention to these subjects and topics that we want to dive into together. Just one housekeeping note before we dive in. Um, This is the first of two Art Bites that you're going to get in a row. There will be no big episode drop this month. It's July. If you're listening to this in real time, it's hot. Um, But in August, we will have a larger episode, and that is going to be the first ever interview on Art of History. So I'm really excited for that. You're going to love it. The subject matter is not an area we've dove dived into before. Um, I'm thrilled that we've gotten this interview and I'm working on editing it right now. So stay tuned for that. Now, I love these art bites because they're a way of talking about like trending topics in either art history or related to subjects that we've covered in the past. So maybe we don't want to do a whole episode, but like it's still something I would love to talk about with you. Um, And that's that's the case today as well. And Ironically, the three art bites that I, the one that I did and these two that I now have planned and I'm recording, they're all taking us to Tudor times. So I don't think there will be any complaints about that. Um, Today, we are going to chat about what is known as the Anne of Cleves house in the UK, and it is currently on the market. 
Um, so once again, as with the last art bite where we discussed a portrait of Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's sixth wife, which was up for sale. Um, oh, I should check on the auction actually and see if it, um, because that was on July 5th. Yes, it did. Okay. So first an art bite update. Um, the rediscovered portrait of Catherine Parr did sell at Sotheby's earlier this month. If you're listening in July, remember the estimate was, it was about 800,000 pounds. I said it would probably top a million. Um, it went for four times that <laughs> this painting uh, fetched, let's see here, 3,436,000 pounds, which is about 4,368 US dollars. And that includes like, I don't know how bidding on rare art works, but that includes the buyer's premium that you have to pay and the dealer's fees and things like that. Um, that's, that's an insane margin. I knew it would go for more than the estimate. Um, this, wow. Wait, let me check something. It was not the highest earning lot of the auction, but this painting is now the, let's see, highest, yeah, the most expensive Tudor painting that was ever brought to auction. So we love that for Ms. Catherine Parr, and it bodes well for the subject of today's episode. Um, which is the Anne of Cleves house. Many of you tagged me in this, whether on my um, podcast account or on my main account, which is um, at Mata underscore of underscore fact. That is my main account where I talk about all things royal. And once again, I think you were sending me this uh, <laughs> listing or these posts about this house because I would love to buy this. And then we could go stay in it together. It could be like a little a little art history lovers retreat. It could be like a content house for nerds. Like it would be so great. Um, this listing is for a English stately home, but like they call them cottages, which I always find funny. Like many stately English homes, this house has a name. It is called Wings Place officially, but it is also referred to as Anne of Cleves House. Um, it is on the market currently for 2.25 million pounds. I would say I think it's going to fetch more, but this property does have a history of being listed for around that price, and it hasn't always um, made the mark. So we'll get into that a little bit later in the episode. But this house, it is beautiful. It's breathtaking, and it has a connection to one of Henry VIII's wives. Like, uh, what more could you want? Since I've uh, recorded the last art bite where we chatted about Catherine Parr, I actually have seen finally in person uh, Six the Musical, which if you haven't yet experienced that, um, see if it's coming to a place near you. It's touring around the US right now or just listen to the um, album. <laughs> it is a girl band formed by the six of Henry VIII's wives and it's perfection. And Anne of Cleves is like a fan favorite in that show, I have to say. Um, I think she was my mom's favorite <laughs> who I went to see it with. Um, so I'm really, I've got a soft spot for Anne of Cleves right now. Um, but this house itself, and we'll get to the connection to Anne in just a moment, um, but the house itself beyond that connection is just gorgeous. It's breathtaking and it is considered one of the finest examples of a timber framed Tudor home in Britain currently, which is really something. And all of these things I'm going to tell you do come from like the, the real estate agents trying to sell it. So like, are these statements academically verifiable? No, but like it's an art bite. So do they have to be? We're just dishing. 
Um, Wings Place is also one of the few grade one listed properties in the UK still in private ownership. And if you've never heard that term grade one listed, it refers to a way that historically significant buildings are registered within the UK. So here in America, we have like national landmarks. Um, there's ways of registering buildings as historically significant. And this is kind of the equivalent over in the UK. Um, there are three levels of listed buildings. In all, there are 374,000 entries of listed buildings um, as of, I guess, the last time they counted <laughs> and like released the number, which was March 2010. Um, of them, 2.5% are grade one, which is said to be a building of exceptional interest. And, you know, you have to apply, so you have to make your case, and then a committee um, decides what your building's going to get listed as. For reference, Buckingham Palace is a grade one listed building. <laughs> so is Tower Bridge and the Houses of Parliament. Like we're talking about like exceptional national or architectural importance. Those are the two like ways you can get in the grade one listing. Um, right now, about 2.5% of all of the listings are grade one. So that's like nine, I think it's like 9.3 thousand buildings um, total. So it's like kind of a rare designation and Wings Place being one of the few left in private hands, that's, that's pretty notable. Going down the list a little further, you have then grade two listed buildings. Um, and there are two categories of grade two listed buildings. There's grade two with an asterisk next to it. And then there's just grade two. Um, grade two buildings, the lowest tier, confusingly, um, just are buildings that are of special interest. And that makes up about 92% of these listed buildings. Um, a lot of those, I believe, are churches and like other religious sites. And then the grade two with an asterisk are particularly important buildings of more than special interest. So I'm sure that there is like um, a set of criteria to like put it in one of those two grade two categories. In general, um, the criteria includes age, the more old a building is, the more likely it is to be listed, um, how rare a building is. Um, and then the aesthetics of it, the architectural significance, the design of it, as well as the national interest and the like historical significance. So these are all things that play into getting a best building listed in the UK. So I found that interesting. Wings Place, which is at the top of this list as a grade one listed property, is situated in Ditchling in East Sussex. Um, it is called a cottage fondly by the English. Although if you do look at the listing photos that I'll put on the Instagram, I... I mean, it's not like any cottage that I think we're going to be renting on Airbnb anytime soon. Um, but it does retain many of its Tudor features, including the beautiful beams, the exposed wood. It's just, it's stunning. Some of the rooms, including what looks like um, one of the bedrooms and the kitchen have these like vaulted ceilings. It's breathtaking. I just, oh, the bathroom too. It's like situated under half of the vaulted roof. So it's like kind of a triangle shape, but it's like really, really charming. And I love it. The estate agents have noted for us, quote, there is a striking gable to the northern aspect with oversailing to the first floor, ornamental timbers and curved. I think this is supposed to be based. No, I, ch I copied and pasted, so it wouldn't have autocorrected. Carved barge boards. I do not know what a barge board is. Um, <laughs> tall brick chimneys and leaded light casement windows. Again, just all those little details. If you're thinking of a Tudor home in your head, that's exactly what it looks like. 
Architectural historian Nicholas Pevsner described the house as, quote, eminently picturesque in a watercolorist's way. <laughs> it just, it has character. Kind of like, um, if you've seen the movie The Holiday, it looks like Kate Winslet's home that she rents out to um, Cameron Diaz. There are, like, these 16th century fireplaces. There are two oak staircases and oak joinery in the fixtures, which, like, does not come cheap these days. They also say, quote, the vaulted kitchen, which does look to be more modern. They've remodeled it a bit, it seems. Um, it offers glorious views across the stone terrace and garden, which is full of just, like, suitably gnarled looking trees. The garden itself offers, quote, a sweeping outlook on the South Downs National Park. What more, literally, what more could you ask for? Now, a spokesperson at the estate agent's agency um, that has listed the site explains that the home, the, the land that the home is on, has been inhabited for almost a thousand years. Something you can only really say if you're talking about Europe. We, we don't have that in the, in the U.S., um, they say, quote, a former manorial estate, which began life as Ditchling Manor Garden and extended into the Chailey Parish. It is first mentioned by name in 1095 as part of the Priory of St. Pancras at Luz. After the dissolution of the monasteries in 1537, the last prior, Robert, surrendered Ditchling Garden, Garden Manor to Henry VIII. And here we will enter into our little Tudor history lesson of it all. <laughs> So because this is an art bite, this is not going to be a comprehensive, you know, look at Henry VIII's story. Um, we're picking up with him about 1536, where he has already decided to break England from the Catholic Church, um, and he has been declared the supreme head of the Church of England. Um, that, it wasn't a smooth transition. There were still monasteries connected to the church, the Catholic Church. Um, within the United, well, England at this time, it wasn't the United Kingdom yet. Um, and they owned a lot of land, these monasteries. They had a lot of land, they had a lot of valuables because part of the Catholic Church, the thing that Protestants were like rejecting was the accumulation of wealth and precious metals and, and relics and things like that. Um, so in 1536, Henry and his, you know, his aides, among them Cardinal Wolsey and Thomas Cromwell, who we'll get to in a second, <laughs> they passed this act where small monasteries were closed. Their buildings, their land, and their money, their possessions, were all seized by the crown. And then another act of suppression happened in 1539, and it extended to like a greater percentage of the monasteries. So their lands, their building, they were confiscated. Many of them were either sold off or gifted by Henry to families that supported him and sympathized with his new reformation. And in 1538, Henry VIII granted the property known now as Wings Place to Thomas Cromwell. Now, Cromwell is going to be the subject of another art bite very soon, where we will get his kind of like beginnings, his origin story. We're kind of skipping ahead at this point, so you'll know the end of his story before you know the beginning of it. But for now, what you need to know is that Thomas Cromwell was Henry VIII's favorite minister at this time. He had been made Henry's principal secretary and chief minister in 1534, shortly after England formally broke with the Catholic Church. That was probably because of how instrumental he was in making that happen. After Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn, was executed, um, 
Thomas Cromwell succeeded her father, Thomas Boleyn, as the Lord Privy Seal. And in July of 1536, he was made Baron Cromwell of Wimbledon. So he was raised to the nobility. He was instrumental in orchestrating that dissolution of the monasteries, and he sought to further England's religious reformation by linking Henry, at this time, to a Protestant princess. By now, <laughs> Jane Seymour, the third wife, has died her tragic death. Go listen to the Ghosts of Hampton Court Palace episode for more on that. And Henry, at the urging of his ministers, his aides, has reluctantly begun to search for his fourth wife. It was Cromwell who suggested Anne of Cleves as a potential match for him. Now, again, we're not going to do, it's not going to be a comprehensive look at her life. I wish I had time right now to do that, but um, we're doing an art bite once again. Anne of Cleves was the sister of Duke Wilhelm of Cleves, and her older sister had recently been married herself to the head of the Protestant Confederation of Germany. So she was the sister-in-law to a man who was literally called the, quote, champion of the Reformation. On paper, that makes Anne of Cleves the perfect match for Henry, who is trying to now kind of link himself, hims link himself, himself to the Reformation. Henry agreed to the marriage contract after seeing a portrait painted of Anne of Cleves by um, the Tudor painter Hans Holbein the Younger. This also has a whole song about it in <laughs> Sixth the Musical. I will put that portrait on the Instagram. And then on December 27th, 1539, Anne arrived at Dover after making the crossing um, from Germany over to the UK. I want to say the UK. It's England. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. King Henry was really eager to finally see his new bride in person. This is the first woman he has married who he hasn't met in person beforehand, which like when it comes to kings, that's normally how it goes. These matches are diplomatic. You don't get to pick out your own wife, but Henry has three times before. So he rushes to Dover to meet her. And of course, we all kind of know the story, I'm guessing. He goes, meets her and is immediately repelled by her physically, saying, quote, I like her not. But the real story here is a bit more convoluted than that. See, at this time, Henry was 48 years old and like a hard 48. He has by this time sustained the jousting injuries to his head and his legs um, that kind of altered his personality from golden prince to cruel tyrant. And also those leg injuries um, oozed from time to time. So a hard 48. But say what you want about his character. The man loved love, and he particularly loved courtly love, which is this intricate system of conventionalized romantic uh, gestures and games, almost, that happen at royal courts. Anne Boleyn and Henry had been masters at the game of courtly love, with their relationship spanning seven years from the time that he first expressed interest in her in 1525 to their official marriage in 1533. Their relationship played out in the open at first through courtly flirtation, and then Henry got the idea to pursue it more seriously. 
But it's what we think of as, you know, a knight wooing a lady, writing them songs, sending them gifts, dancing together, or watching each other dance. Those are, those are things in courtly love. And you can't help but wonder if he was trying to recreate the feelings of desire that courtly love would strike up in a person when he approached his relationship with Anne of Cleves, which happened 15 years after he had first engaged in his flirtation with Anne Boleyn. Because on January 1st, 1540, Henry VIII did meet up with Anne of Cleves' party at Rochester. There was supposed to be a formal meeting um, a few days later with like the court present. It was going to be like very hoity-toity. But apparently he couldn't wait that long and he wanted to pay her this private visit first. And like this is a little scandalous because Anne of Cleves is a foreign noblewoman. There is some pomp and circumstance that has to happen here. So for that reason, in Anne of Cleves' party is a man named Eustace Chapuis. Um, Chapuis, I'm not sure if you actually say the S on the end. Um, he was there in the room when Henry encountered Anne of Cleves for the first time. He was the imperial ambassador from the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and incidentally, it's his accounts of Henry's court, which provide us so much insight into episodes that happened as first Catherine of Aragon and then Anne Boleyn were undergoing their downfalls. This man loved to record things um, for posterity. And, you know, he has his sympathies. He works for the Holy Roman Emperor. So like he was very pro-Catherine and very anti-Anne Boleyn. Um, so you have to take his accounts with a grain of salt. But for telling us like this happened on this day, his accounts are very valuable. So anyway, he's in the room when the king arrived to greet Anne of Cleves, and he reported, quote, The king so went into the chamber where the said Lady Anne was looking out of a window to see the bull baiting which was going on in the courtyard. And suddenly he embraced and kissed her and showed her a token which the king had sent her for New Year's gift. And she, being abashed and not knowing who it was, thanked him, and so he spoke with her. But she regarded him little, but always looked out the window. And when the king saw that she took so little notice of his coming, he went into another chamber and took off his cloak and came in again in a cloak of purple velvet. And when the lords and knights saw his grace, they did him reverence. So what has happened there is Henry has come into the room basically in disguise. And for him, a disguise is don't dress like a king, <laughs> like put on some probably some brown clothes, you know, just like in every man's clothing. And he has tried to give Anne, like, tokens of affection that he's saying, oh, these are from the king for his new wife. Um, but really, it's him. She is brushing him off <laughs> because she doesn't know who he is. And then he comes back in dressed as the king this time. And everyone, you know, oh, they bow or kneel or whatever they have to do. Now, according to the testimony of Henry's companions that were with him on this visit, he went away from this first encounter feeling utterly disappointed with Anne and feeling that he had been duped. She was not as had been advertised in the marriage negotiations. But like, imagine you are Anne of Cleves in this moment. You have grown up in a very small German court, nothing like the big English court. You've received no formal education. You can do needlework, you like playing card games, but you're not like culturally refined in the ways that a woman from the court of France or Spain or yeah, even dark, cold England <laughs> would have been. You can read and write, but only in German. Your verbal English spills are like shaky at best at this point. You are 24 years old and your main virtues are that you are docile and you're modest. 
So you've traveled across the European continent to marry the twice your age King of England when suddenly some old fat guy <laughs> in regular clothes bursts into your apartment and tells you that he's bringing gifts from your future husband and then he tries to kiss you. Like, you're gonna, at the very least, give this man the cold shoulder. You're gonna say thank you very much uh, and then you're gonna ignore him because you didn't sign up for that. And also, if your future husband, the king, finds out that you've let some old pervert caress you on the way to your wedding, um, not good. Especially if your future husband king has already beheaded one wife after seeing her being charged with adultery. <laughs> so this this dude is lucky that you're not physically assaulting him, like, to be completely honest, to try and get him to back off. And so I would imagine that even after this man has revealed himself to be your future husband king, things are gonna be a bit awkward. And that was clearly not how the interaction was supposed to go. By the rules of engagement within courtly love, Anne of Cleves likely would have been expected to just know that this disguised man was Henry, was the king. This would have symbolized that the match was one of true love, and she would have been expected to like gently flirt back tell the messenger to give her love to the king, slip a compliment in there, etc. Um, but that is not what she did, and I'm willing to bet that Henry felt a little bit stung and silly, and I'm willing to bet he got a bit sulky, as he was wont to do. But this is, this is a foreign princess that you have contracted into marriage. You cannot just say, I don't like her, and behead her. Like, that's not how this works. <laughs> Henry did go through with the marriage, with the wedding ceremony taking place on January 6th at Greenwich Palace, but Henry also continued to be sulky. <laughs> he complained that he had been misled by his ministers, specifically Thomas Cromwell, as to Anne's beauty. That was kind of the thing that he seized on. He said, quote, she is nothing so fair as she hath been reported. Now, as far as Anne's beauty actually goes, she was described by the French ambassador as being tall and slim, quote, of middling beauty and of very assured and resolute countenance. She had fair hair and was said to have had a lovely face. She probably looked like just a sweet, demure young woman. In the words of the chronicler Edward Hall, she arrived in England, quote, her hair hanging down, which was fair, yellow, and long. She was apparelled after the English fashion with a French hood. That's the one that Anne Boleyn favored. It was more fashionable. Which so set forth her beauty and good visage that every creature rejoiced to behold her. Now, listen, Henry, we know, was so enamored of Anne Boleyn, but she was not described as beautiful by contemporaries of co at court, just kind of in the same way that like Cleopatra and Scarlett O'Hara were not described as beautiful. Instead, what they were was beguiling. And like, it's possible that Henry, who had been so taken in by Anne Boleyn, despite her like kind of um, like recorded lack of conventional beauty, it's possible that he truly didn't like the looks of Anne of Cleves. But it's more probable, I think, that the real problem with her was that he wasn't charmed by her in that first meeting. And he clearly preferred, as I mentioned earlier, to choose his wives himself based on like their connection and their banter. He had done it with all three of his first wives. And what's more, he may have felt shame from that disastrous first meeting with Anne of Cleves and attached it to her, like psychologically. I'm not trying to diagnose the man across like 500 years of history, but I'm just saying it's possible. And obviously, it, if you're the king, right, it's not your fault that your little courtly love game has failed. It was Anne's for not instinctively knowing how to act. 
So the I like her not excuse in my book is likely just that, an excuse. One that deflects from Henry's probably deep psychological things that he had going on at this time. And one that also deflected from the fact that the political reasons for allying England with the Duchy of Cleves were not as ironclad as Cromwell would have liked. I'm not really up to date on my Tudor era politics across Europe, but if I'm remembering correctly, there was like a strategic reason to ally with Cleves for Reformation purposes. But because of like who they were allied with, I think it was France. I think it was France. Basically, England allying themselves with Cleves meant that they would have to go to war <laughs> with either like France or Spain at some point if they ever tried to bully Cleves. And Henry, like, did not want to be pulled into that. If he was going to go to war, it would have been for his own purposes. So all of these are possible reasons for him, like, not taking a shine to Anne. Shortly after the marriage, he did formally change his mind. He decided that he couldn't bear it and started getting things in place for an annulment. Now, of course, Catholics know an annulment is different than a divorce. Henry actually never had a divorce from one of his wives. Um, a divorce is like after the marriage has taken place, you're breaking it off. An annulment is finding a reason that that marriage was never valid in the first place. So this could be something to do with the consummation of the marriage, saying that that never took place. Therefore, the whole thing was invalid. It could also be a reason of um, you go back to <laughs> you go back to square one and say, hey, actually, I'm too closely related to that woman. So therefore, our marriage was never valid, even though you're the king and you had the pope waive that re requirement to be like, however distantly related in the first place. He was Henry. He could do whatever he wanted was like the thing. So he's looking for a reason to annul the marriage to Anne of Cleves. And he confi confided in Cromwell that he had been unable to consummate it. Now, of course, this wasn't Henry's fault. No, the 48-year-old man who's already had three wives and has like a slew of medical issues can't possibly be his fault for not being fully, what's the word you want to use here, potent? <laughs> um, no, can't, can't possibly be his fault. So that's, I think, again, where the I like her not excuse comes from. He had to have a reason that he couldn't perform with Anne of Cleves, but it couldn't be him. <laughs> so he tells Cromwell this. Unfortunately, Cromwell passed that information to all the wrong people, and it became something of an open secret in court that the king was, for all intents and purposes, impotent. Now, during the annulment proceedings, it was put in the official record that it was definitely not Henry's fault. He was for sure physically capable of consummating a marriage, and not at all impotent. <laughs> He got his physician to testify that after the wedding night, the king had experienced, quote, duas pollutiones nocturnas in somno, or two nocturnal emissions. That is part of the official Tudor legal record. Yeah. Um, now, Anne, for her part, very wisely agreed to the annulment. She realized, like, hey, I don't, this isn't going to work. Um, she did spend like a nice chunk of time as queen ordering clothes and jewels for herself. Like, get it, girl. Um, but she actually didn't take a lot of the blame in the official capacity. Not in the same way that Cromwell did. He, he did. He shouldered uh, most of the punishment here. Henry couldn't really punish his ill-fated fourth wife like he had with his first two, uh, first banishing Catherine of Aragon and then beheading Anne, of, uh, Anne Boleyn. 
Um, there would be international political consequences if he did that to Anne of Cleves. Um, and he was also grateful for her for dissolving the marriage like so easily. He wrote to her on the day that the annulment was secured, quote, you shall find us a perfect friend content to repute you as our dearest sister. We shall within five or six days determine your state minding to endow you with 4,000 pounds of yearly revenue. And he signed it, your loving brother and friend. <laughs> that sum he was referring to there is worth about 1.6 million pounds today or 2.2 million US dollars. Um, so no, Anne was not going to be receiving the brunt of Henry's displeasure here. Instead, Henry had Thomas Cromwell arrested during a Privy Council meeting in June 1540, once the annulment has kind of been solidified. Um, it's not been finalized, but like they know it's going to happen. He accused Cromwell of various charges, but most historians agree that his real crime was the, quote, humiliation of the marriage, however brief, to Anne of Cleves that Henry had had to endure. Like I said before, there were some mitigating political factors between the Duchy of Cleves and France and the Holy Roman Empire. Um, essentially, at this point, there was a lot more in the con column of the diplomatic match with Cleves than there was in the pro column, and probably than there ever was to begin with. Cromwell was imprisoned and stripped of his titles and properties, including several houses, which formed the basis of Anne's essentially divorce settlement. Now, sadly for Cromwell, he lost more than just his houses. Um, before the summer of 1540 was over, he was going to lose his head. He was condemned to death without trial and was beheaded on Tower Hill on July 28th, 1540. And like, I know we talk mostly about Henry VIII beheading his wives, but he also executed like men, like his, his advisors. Like it wasn't just women. Um, I, I'm not trying to get like anti-feminist here, but... Cromwell Cromwell is so interesting because like he was doing what Henry wanted up until a certain point um it's just fascinating to see like the ebbs and flows of Henry's Henry's rage and the way his court maneuvered itself around that I'm sure that Anne of Cleves is still in the English court um she never left actually even after her marriage was annulled she never again left England um I'm sure she was breathing one big sigh of relief at this point um the king, ironically, deferred Cromwell's execution until his marriage to her had been officially annulled, just in case Cromwell was needed to give more evidence of the king's distaste for her. So she probably was holding her breath that entire time, just waiting for that final confirmation to come through. Oh, and on the same day that Cromwell was beheaded, Henry married his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. <laughs> Again, we covered her in the Ghosts of Hampton Court Palace episode. Long story short, she was a cousin of Anne Boleyn's who got placed in Anne of Cleves' household as a lady of wait in waiting. She was in her late teens when Henry uh, met and married her. Um, she also met a pretty grisly fate. Yeah, we're going to leave it there for now because that's a whole other, <laughs> whole other rabbit hole, but it's in the Ghosts episode. So yeah. Anne really did make it out of that seven-month nightmare with, like, the best possible deal. On a personal level, she kind of became an honorary member of the Tudor family. Um, she was known as the king's beloved sister, and she would visit court, including once during the Christmas season of 1541. I love this story. Um, during a feast during, like, the Twelfth Night celebrations, she danced with Queen Catherine Howard, 
after Henry had gone to bed. So like a really cute, probably moment of solidarity between these two queens. And like, even though Henry and Anne had had a rocky start and he felt, I don't even think it was animosity. I think it was just like distaste for the idea of her being his wife. Um, He did decree that Anne would be given precedence over all the women in England outside of his own wife at the time, whoever that happened to be, and his two daughters, Princess Mary and Princess Elizabeth. Now, the large scale of Anne's um, financial settlement is also thought to be a sign of Henry's gratitude for her not contesting the annulment. As former queen, um, her settlement was generous, to say the least. Um, It included the Palace of Richmond in what was then rural Surrey, and (laughs) Hever Castle, which was the former family residence of Henry's former in-laws, the Boleyns. Yeah, Anne Boleyn grew up in this castle. (laughs) Um, So those two places probably would have been Anne's, like, primary residence. But there were other properties that were part of her new real estate portfolio. And this brings us back to Wings Place, the place that is currently for sale. That was just one of her, her new properties. She accumulated a bunch of smaller houses and small estates even. And the reasoning behind um, giving her those properties was because at this time, tracts of land provided a person with an income. If that land was producing, you know, food, livestock, produce, things like that, the or like rent income from tenants, the owner of the land would get the income of that. So I think that's why her real estate portfolio was so large. It like made up her financial income as well. But like with most of the smaller houses and estates that Anne of Cleves acquired at this time, she never lived at Wings Place. And in fact, there are other quote quote unquote Anne of Cleves houses that have a very similar story. Um, I've actually visited one of them. It is in Lewes, L-E-W-E-S. I think that's how you say it. Here in America, we have Lewis in uh, Delaware. It's like a beach. A lot of people say Lewis, but I think in the UK they say Lewes. Um, You can correct me if I'm wrong. But this one is also in East Sussex. Um, It was given to Anne at the end of her short-lived marriage to Henry VIII, and she never lived there either. Um, I do find it fascinating that both of these properties, Wings Place and the Anne of Cleves house in Lewes, are they're in Sussex. And today they're just 15 minutes apart by car. Um, Today, the Anne of Cleves house is a museum where you can learn about Tudor life and the history of Sussex. Um, It's owned and operated by their archaeological society. And it's another property that is just gorgeous. It has like a central garden. If I'm remembering correctly, it was like almost like a courtyard area. Um, one of the rooms is like charmingly slanted. It's it's really cute. Um, I had a good time there. But even that is not the only other Anne of Cleves house in existence. In Melton Mowbray, Leicestershire, you can find the Anne of Cleves pub, which boasts on its website, quote, Originally built in 1384 as a dwelling for Parsons in Melton Mowbray and known as the Manor of Lewes. So again, we're in like the same geographic area, which I find fascinating. This pub continued to be linked to the church until the mid 1500s as a Chantres priest's house. 1539 saw this house fall to the hands of the crown again in the dissolution of the monasteries. Thomas Cromwell was gifted again this house by the king in recognition for his role in reclaiming church properties. Um, Cromwell actually did live briefly in this house, the Anne of Cleves pub house, um, before he was beheaded in 1540. 
And But like many of Cromwell's properties, once it made up part of Anne's annulment settlement, she never set foot there. <laughs> now, there are also fake Anne of Cleves houses, and this I find really fun. Um, there is one Anne of Cleves house that can be found in Haverhill. It's probably Haverhill. Yeah, it's probably Haverhill, um, which is in Suffolk. Legend says that this is one of Haverhill's few Tudor buildings to have survived a fire in the 1600s. However, the Suffolk County Council says that, quote, while the building is an important peck, <laughs> I don't think it's actually peck sample, I think it's example. Awesome. Google Docs. Good job. Um, while the building is an important example of its type, its connection with Anne of Cleves, the fourth wife of Henry VIII, is a recent fiction, believed to have been the marketing ploy of a local estate agent in 1967. <laughs> The house was known as Wags, W-A-G-G-S, in the 17th century after the owner of the medieval house on the same site. They clarify that the house as it is known today was built around 1630 by a John Mortlock, who was a successful merchant who aspired to the ranks of the local gentry. Um, and that they also claim that the Anne of Cleves connection here likely stems from another place. Her divorce settlement or annulment settlement of 1541 included the tithes of the Haverhill, um, what would it be called? Parish, I guess. Of so, so her divorce settlement entitled her to collect the tithe income from this parish, along with those of many other parishes. But she lived at Hever Castle in Kent, would never have visited the town, blah, blah, blah. So there is a connection to her in the area, but she still died about a century before the actual building that, like, as it stands today, was, was built. So lots of Anne of Cleves houses is what I have learned, but buyer beware, they may not all be genuine. <laughs> now, Anne did die in 1557, outliving Henry and all five of his other wives. She is the only one of Henry's queens to be buried in Westminster Abbey. And it's possible that before her death, Henry actually did grow to like her after their annulment. In fact, there were some rumors when she visited court that she had fallen pregnant with the king's child. And after Catherine Howard was executed, Anne's brother, the Duke of Cleves, wrote to Henry asking him to remarry her. <laughs> By this time, though, Henry had already begun pursuing his sixth and final wife, Catherine, Catherine Parr. So for a lot of reasons, I think he just like probably ignored that letter, pretended he never got it. Now, of the match with Catherine Parr, Anne is reported to have said something along the lines of, hmm, Mistress Parr is taking a great burden upon herself. <laughs> so maybe she wasn't as fond of her brother ex-husband king as we would like to believe. After Anne's death, many of her properties did revert back to the crown. So when you're given either a title or a property by the crown, sometimes when you die, it doesn't get passed off to your heir. It goes back to the crown. Whoever is the monarch at the time then gets to dispense it once again. Um, this is what happened to Wings Place, the, the property that is currently on the market. Later in the 16th century, that house was likely rebuilt. Um, its present appearance is largely 16th century, so it may not even have looked as it does now in Anne of Cleves' day, but again, doesn't matter. She never went there. <laughs> the house did pass from hand to hand over the centuries. Um, at time, it housed politicians, including um, William Pitt and the Duke of Wellington, like the Duke of Wellington. So I found that interesting. 
Um, Parts of the house have apparently also been used to conduct secret Catholic masses. It's been used as a public library and later as a private club, like a members only club. Um, In the 20th century, it was owned for about 30 years by a, quote, reclusive American businessman. We love that. Um, And then for about 10 years, it was owned by television presenter Jamie Theakston. I don't know who this is. Apparently he's a he's a UK uh is he a radio presenter now? Uh, something like that. Um, this man purchased the home for about eight hundred thousand pounds in two thousand four. Apparently, the story that I saw online says that he got sick, literally, of hitting his head on the wooden beams. This man is six foot four, um, and so he put the house up for sale in two thousand nine with a reporting asking price of two million pounds. Now, back in 2009, that would have been a little bit more exorbitant of a rate. Um, He apparently reduced this asking price considerably before finding a buyer in August 2015, six years after the initial listing. So who knows what improvements had to be done to it in that time. It looks great now. You know, I, um, I imagine it has been redone, judging by the real estate photos. Everything just looks so, like, in its place. It's so charming. Once again, if you haven't looked at the pictures on the Instagram, please go do that. So you can see where we're all going to hang out together once one of us buys it. Um, The asking price is currently sitting at 2.25 million pounds. Um, The backyard alone, I think, makes it worth it. The picture of the terrace, it looks like a magazine spread. It's so beautiful. Um, But hey, if it sits on the market for another six years, maybe we do actually have a chance of buying it. One of us can make it big in the meantime. Not saying it'll be me, but one of us. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, Okay, that's I I think that's it. That's the end of my notes here. Like I said, in our next episode, which is going to air one week from today, so it'll be the one immediately after this in our feed... That episode is also going to take us into Tudor history, and we're going to focus once again on Thomas Cromwell. If you've been paying attention to, like, art historical finds in the past few weeks, you will know the topic of our next art bite, and I'm very excited to delve into it. Um, But yeah, I love this house and I want to live in it. (laughs) Okay, all right, I'm going to cut myself off here or else I'll just look at these pictures all day. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I truly, I love your feedback. If you'd like to send me an email, you can do that at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts on um, our topics thus far. If you would like to um, purchase this house with me, also email me, please. If you own this house and would like to give it to me for free, um, you could do that and we'll film content in it and it'll be great. Um, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow the show on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. And I will see you in the next one.